Well, it is so great to be here today. I always consider it a joy and a thrill to be able to speak. I just want to say uh, on behalf of Demi and myself and Matthew, um, we, we are so thankful for this church and for the family that we found here and have enjoyed being a part of, of, of this church for the past year. It, it's been awesome. And so thank you for, for that. Thank you for making us so welcome. Um, I, I want to speak to you today about a treasure. And before I do, I want to tell you about one of my treasures. Um, when I, when I lived in Sri Lanka with my family, we were there for six years growing up, and one of the things that we had to live without, um, maybe not a big thing for you, but it was a big thing for us, we had to live without Pop-Tarts. <sighs> I mean it, really, we had to live without Pop-Tarts. And so what we would do because of this is when we would have short-term mission teams come to visit us, we would always request a suitcase of Pop-Tarts. Um, not the four-pack or the eight-pack. I'm talking the suitcase pack of, of Pop-Tarts. And so when they would arrive, we, you know, we'd be excited to see them at the airport, but we were more looking for that, that suitcase and the baggage claim so that we could get, we could get to these Pop-Tarts. And they would have, you know, 30 boxes of Pop-Tarts uh, in this suitcase, which when you're a family of seven and you don't know when the next shipment is going to come in, really isn't that much. Um, but these Pop-Tarts, because they were so rare for us and because they were such a treat, I mean, we... We treasured these Pop-Tarts. We rationed these Pop-Tarts. They were, like, we only brought these out on, like, Mother's Day and, like, big, the big days uh, because of how precious they were. And because ants were such a big problem for us in Sri Lanka, what we would have to do is we would, we would you know, take the Pop-Tarts. They're already in their little packets and then inside their boxes. But then we would take that and put it inside a big Ziploc bag and then inside of a trash bag, seal that shut. And then we would put them in this big crate, this big tub that we kept locked up. This was our Pop-Tart stash. And on these special occasions, we would bring it out and we would enjoy these Pop-Tarts. Well, one day that we did this, this was, this was probably about three months into this uh, stash of Pop-Tarts. And, um, you know, I'd already been anticipating this breakfast. I'd already had a nice dream about this Pop-Tart and about to have strawberry. And uh, we go to open it up. We open up the tub. We open up the baggies. We open up the Ziploc bag. Open up the box. And then open up the individual wrapper, and to my dismay, I found just a colony of ants popping out of this Pop-Tart bag. <sighs> I mean, just like the little holes in the Pop-Tart, and you could just see them coming out one by one. And to, to see this thing that I treasured so much be eaten by something else was, it was tough. But I was still hungry. And so I had to kind of count the cost in my, my mind of what, what am I going to do? Here's this dilemma. Do I take the ant bite or do I throw away the Pop-Tart? I took the ant bite. <laughs> plural, it was plural, ant bites. Um, I, now, I had a technique for the way I eat Pop-Tarts. I break it in half and I put it in a glass of milk. So my thinking was, I'll just drown out these ants. So it, they, it, glass of milk, they'll be gone. That didn't work. I, I was stung a few times on the tongue, but it was worth it for this Pop-Tart. And I think the Pop-Tart, it, it, it's a good illustration because as much as I treasured it, as much as I tried to hold on to it and make it last, the ants wouldn't let me keep it. Um, and I think that you have seen, and uh, you know, if you've ever watched a movie or if you've ever you know, heard stories of people that come near to the end of their life, there are so many things in this world that the world would tell us we must treasure, we must hold on to, we must try to cling to. And I believe that all of them, all of them, just like my Pop-Tarts, 
In one way or another, they either rot or rust or are taken away or eaten by ants. We, we just can't hold on to them. And so as I was thinking about what I wanted to speak today to you seniors and, and to all of us, um, as you consider, you know, moving forward and, and going out on your own and trying to decide for yourself what you want to structure your life after and what you want to build your life towards, I could think of no better challenge than to remind you of the great treasure that God has provided for us uh, in himself. And just to point to you of what extreme value and worth uh, eternally that treasure is, and in light of that, how worthless all these other pursuits are. And so we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to go ahead and turn there, the end of the chapter. Um, th- this chapter is devoted to seven parables that Jesus delivers to uh, a big crowd uh, and these first four he delivers to the crowd, and then we get these last three here at the end of the chapter that he pulls his followers, his, his disciples aside and tells them these last few parables at the end of the chapter that we want to look at. And I, I want to read this to you, verses 44 through 46. Pay attention to what it says, and then let's, let's see what we can take out of this. Starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here we have two stories back to back, two parables that are very similar. We have men who, in one way or another, discover some treasure, some pearl that is of such great value that they, without hesitation, sell all that they have, and purchase it. Two people who do this very similar thing. And what I want us to do as we look at this, I, I want to first begin by defining to you what this treasure is that they've discovered. And then I want to give you three truths that I think uh, we see in these, this passage of how we are to respond to this treasure. So let's begin just by defining what it is. It says, he says that the kingdom of heaven, or maybe your translation says the kingdom of God, is like this, is like this discovery of this treasure. And basically what he's saying here is, that the kingdom of God is like finding access. Well, when we talk about God's kingdom, we're talking about finding access to God, to God's kingdom. Um, when we talk about God's kingdom, there, there are a lot of things that we could discuss. Typically, in our minds, when we think about a kingdom, we think in terms of geography, right? We think of a king and his territory, his land, his boundaries, his borders. That's his kingdom, right? We think about it in a geographical sense. And when we think about the kingdom of God, it's a little bit differently. We're thinking less, as, as John Piper puts it, we're thinking less about a realm or a place and more about a reign, the, the reign and the rule of God. And so, quite simply, when I say kingdom of God, what I'm saying is God getting his way in the world, in the universe, and in history. When we think about what God's way is, what God's will is, we know that God's will is to rule the world, and to be worshipped by the world, right? For the world to proclaim his name and honor him and worship him. That is his will. Um, and so when we think of his kingdom, that's, that's what we're talking about. Receiving himself. Knowing him. Seeing him and who he is and worshipping him as a result. Now when we talk about God's kingdom, uh, many people would say that it's, it's kind of one of those, it's, it's tricky to talk about because it's kind of already, but also not yet. And what I mean by that is, we talk about God being worshipped and praised by all of, all of the, the globe, and I think we'd all agree that that's not quite where we are yet. There are so many people that would reject God and, and do not know of what he's done for them and, 
And so, in a sense, we're already there, but we're not quite all the way there yet because of that. And, and so when we talk about God's kingdom, we're receiving something that's already happened, but there's this thing that we're looking ahead to, this thing that's in the future, this, this final day that we can look forward to where his, his reign and his rule will be global and complete and eternal. And that's the day that as Christians we, we, we look forward to, we look ahead to with anticipation. And so what he's talking about, when he, when he mentions these men finding a treasure, what he's saying literally here is that they've discovered access and entrance into this kingdom. They've discovered this gift that God is giving them of himself. That's what they've discovered. God himself. So what do we do with what we've discovered here? I want to give you three things very quickly. I want to respect your time. I know we're starting a little bit later today. I know we don't have an evening service tonight, so I kind of don't feel any pressure to stop too early. Um, But I want to respect your time. Let's look very quickly at these three truths about the treasure. The first thing that I see about the treasure in this passage is that The treasure is available to all, but not accepted by all. The treasure is available to all people, but not accepted by all. Notice, we we see both men approaching from very different circumstances. One man just kind of stumbles upon the treasure. He's going about his regular day, doing his regular work, and he stumbles upon the treasure. He stumbles upon God. Whereas the other man is, this is what he does for a living. He's a merchant who looks for these pearls of great value. He is actively searching for the kingdom, for this treasure. Both men find it. We see here that the treasure itself is very accessible. It's very available. It's sitting in a field. There's not some password or code they have to figure out in order to find it or climb to the top of a mountain to get there. It's in a field. What, how much plainer can it get than that? And if we look at Jesus' ministry, we see over and over again, he's making himself known to people wherever he goes. He's making himself available to people wherever he goes, and yet so many don't see it. So many don't see the value of the treasure because they're looking for something else. I mean, just think about the fact of the story. We we focus on the fact that these two men walked away with a great deal. They walked away purchasing the kingdom. Think about the flip side. That, That means there's two men that lost it, that sold it. Why would they sell it? Because they didn't recognize the value of what they had. Either they didn't take the time to see the treasure in the field for the first man, or in the second case, he had this pearl of great worth and just didn't recognize its value. You see here, God has made himself known to all people. He, he says that, what we see in Second Peter, that God's will is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And John 3.16 says that whoever believes will have eternal life. We know that God has made this gift of himself available for all of creation. We have to see it. We have to see the value of it. If you look just a few chapters later on in Matthew, we see Jesus speaking to a rich young ruler who is desiring to find the kingdom, desiring to know what will it take to enter the kingdom. And Jesus tells him, much like what we see in the model of these two men, says, go sell all you have. Sell all of your possessions and follow me. And what do we see him do? It says he walks away sad. Saddened. Because he was a man of great wealth. He wanted the kingdom. He didn't see the true value of it. If he truly saw the value like these men, we see a clear contrast, don't we? These men, it says they joyfully 
sell all they have in order to grasp it. They see the value of this prize, of this treasure, and they gratefully, joyfully give up all they have in order to hold on to it. You see a clear contrast here between this rich young man and these two men who walk away with the kingdom. It's available to all, but not all will accept it. The second thing that we see is that this treasure is worth infinitely more than any other pursuit. It's worth infinitely more than any other pursuit. Notice the reaction to both men when they come across this treasure. You'll see the repetition of these verbs here. It says that they find, sell, buy. Find, sell, buy. There's no middle ground in there where there's any kind of hesitation. There's no find the treasure, take it out for a test drive, come back, sell everything, buy it. There's no appraisal done. There's no going home to talk to the wife and make sure she's okay with this. It just, there's no hesitation. They know immediately when they found it, this is it. This is what I've searched my whole life for. This is what I've been missing my entire life. And there's no hesitation. Because these men recognize the immeasurable worth of the treasure that they have discovered. There's nothing else that could compare to it. And I would say to you that in a world with so many competing treasures, your position at work, salary, a relationship, an addiction, so many things that would, that would tell you this is what you should build your life towards. This should be your treasure. I would say they all fall short compared to this. They all pale in comparison to this treasure. Think about the man that, that, we, that I just told you about from Matthew 19 who had great wealth and yet he's still searching for this. He still wants to know what can I do to have the kingdom? Even what he had wasn't enough. Think about King Solomon. King Solomon to me is the epitome of achievement. However you look at it. You think of the things we call success. Money, fame, love, knowledge. Checks all those boxes. Wisest man who ever lived. Richest man who ever lived. How many wives and concubines did he have? He had love. And he had fame. He's the king of a powerful nation. He had fame and, and renown. He had everything that the world would call is successful. That the world would say, shape your life towards. Chase after. And listen to what he says about this life that he worked so hard to build. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he says this, So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. Hated life. The man who had everything hated life because he realized all of those pursuits fall short. All of those pursuits cannot be held on to. He said, I have to give it to the next person when I die. I would say to you, if you want to base your identity, your value, the treasure of your life on the things that you can possess, the relationships that you can build, the status that you can grow, you will one day, just like Solomon, realize that you have lived a wasted wasted life. We might think it's silly to look at these men who gave all that they had in order to purchase this gift. I, it makes perfect sense when you recognize the value, the worth 
of this treasure. This is what Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 3 after he goes on to give a list of all of his qualifications. He lists his really prestigious resume about how he's a Hebrew of all Hebrews and how he's followed the law to a T and how you know because of his lineage and his heritage and all this, he is the man. And Then he says, but I count it all as loss. All of it is lost. All of it is, as he says, rubbish, worthless, compared to, as he says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Pursue anything but Him and you'll find that you lived a worthless, rubbish life. Because His treasure is so much more valuable. So much more valuable. The third thing that I want to point out, the treasure itself costs much more to provide than to purchase. It costs much more to provide than to purchase. And what I mean by that is there was a price, there was an extreme cost, but the cost of making this gift available, making this treasure available, is way more expensive than the cost of purchasing it. I mean, think about it. This man, the first man, he, he buys the field and the treasure happens to be on the field. He doesn't have the money to buy the treasure. He doesn't have the equity to be able to afford this great treasure. He gets a great deal getting much more than he deserves out of this treasure. Right? We agree with that? And in the same way, this gift that God has, has provided for us, this gift of a relationship with Him, of access to Him and His kingdom, something we could never deserve. Hear me say that. It would be very easy to read this passage and, and say that, that Jesus is preaching a works-based salvation. That, oh, you want the keys to the kingdom? Sell all your possessions. Do this, do this, do this, and then you'll get it. That's not what's happening here. Hear me say that. You could sell all that you own. All of it. Get rid of all of your relationships, all of your status. Devote all of your time and your energy and your effort to God, and you still would not be able to afford the gift He's given for you. That's why it's called a gift. You can't afford it. You would still come up short. Because we can't purchase it. Our sin keeps us from being able to purchase this gift. But that doesn't mean it didn't cost something. See, God didn't remove the cost of relationship with Him. Rather, He absorbed the cost. He took the cost upon Himself. He paid the price for us. As Galatians 3 says, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's Galatians 3.13. Christ paid the price for us because we could not pay it. And all the other pursuits, you think even all the other religions, say, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you will make it to me. Christ saying, you can't do this or this or this. So I've come to you. I've made a way for you. I've paid the price. This is not about us paying our way into heaven. God has paid the price for us. And the only logical reaction is for us to give everything else away. Every other pursuit we have, to put it aside. That's why these men respond in joy. Because they realize they're getting something they should never deserve. 
They're getting a gift they should never be able to keep. So enjoy. They gratefully give away all that they have. They graciously, gratefully put away every other pursuit that would stand in the way because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And that is the Gospel. That God took upon Himself a great cost, a great suffering. His sent His Son to empty Himself, to leave the glory of heaven and enter our world and endure suffering and persecution and ultimately death. Pay the cost so that we can receive this gift. As people who receive it, I mean, it only makes sense to let go of everything else. Then you physically have to sell everything or, or you know, be homeless. I'm not saying that at all. But these other things that we found our value in, our, our identity in, our focus in, those have lost their weight because of the exceedingly more valuable weight of knowing Christ. So as I close, you know, we've seen these three things. We've seen the infinite worth of, of this treasure. We've seen that it's available to all of us. And we've seen the great cost that was paid to make it available. I, to me, that means there, there's, we have to respond. We have to respond to this treasure. If you look at the very next passage here, after the parable of the pearl of great value, we see the parable of a net. It's a much more serious and solemn parable than what we've just read about men discovering treasure. It says again, the kingdom of heaven, this is verse 47, is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This parable speaks of the judgment that's coming. The day when God will return and separate all people into two groups. Righteous and the evil. He says the good fish and the bad fish. That word bad that he uses comes from the Greek word sapra, which means rotten. The same word he uses to talk about the rotten fruit. He talks about trees that don't bear good fruit. He's saying you will either be a good fish or a bad fish. We see, we see if you, in this passage, the torment and the separation and the tragedy that is awaiting those who would be deemed rotten fish. To me, what's most frightening about this passage is that there's no, there's no schedule here. There's no date, no time set of when those nets are going to drop. He doesn't fill us in on that. What we do know is that they will drop. One day those nets will drop and each and every one of us will be accounted for. Whether, whether we found this treasure to be the most supreme, valuable thing we could own and we gave our life to it, or whether we didn't. Either because we never saw the treasure or because we saw it and we never really saw it what it was worth. We had ears, but we didn't hear. Challenge you, church. Challenge you, seniors. Count the cost now while you can. See the treasure for what it is as infinitely valuable as the greatest thing you could ever give your life to. Buy it. Purchase it. Take it. It's been given to you. It's freely been provided for you. Take it. Abandon all other pursuits and take it. Pray. 
Dear Lord, we thank You for this gift that You've given us. We thank You that You saw fit to make us a part of Your plan. Despite our sin and our our wickedness, You chose to make a way for us to be restored and redeemed through the work of Your Son. And we thank You that You have made that available for us. I ask that for all of us in this room, having heard about this treasure, having heard about what You've done for us, may You grip our hearts to respond in obedience to take hold of this great treasure while it's available for us. We thank you for your love and for your mercy and your grace that you've given us what we don't deserve. May we be people who respond and take hold of this kingdom, be a part of this kingdom. Amen, we pray. Amen.